Hello, once again, welcome to the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Greyhawk. I'm your co-host, Jack Snefflin. And joining us this week, we have... The champion of Stick It, the slayer of Gina Davis. Hello, I'm Mike Noel. You're giving me this look like you thought maybe I actually like went out and hunted <laughs> Gina Davis for sport. <laughs> Listen, I watched Aisha Tyler blow out a lot of people last week. I'm, I'm not sure what's real anymore. Thank you all for joining us this week. We have our second round of participation trophies where we will be discussing 2001's A Knight's Tale, as well as 2008's Speed Racer. I believe you have some tomatoes. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Body out there in Paws Nation, who's a new listener. On my podcast, The Equalizers, we sometimes find Rotten Tomato reviews that are just the wild ones. And so we call it Daddy's Tomatoes. And so, without further gilding the lily, and with no more ado, I give to you the seeker of serenity, the protector of Italian virginity, the enforcer of our Lord God, the one, the only, Sir So, for starting with Speed Racer, our first review comes from Holly S., who gave it five stars. I like it because the colors and roars. Good movie. I cry every time. <laughs> You know, I feel you, Holly. Uh, this next review comes from Raven D, who gave it half a star. Technicolor vomit. Watching it again right now as I write this. Anyone who likes this is a bastard. <laughs> Sounds like actually basically I, what Alex said to us earlier about this movie. So I was on the same page as Raven until that last line. <laughs> I don't think anyone who likes this is a bastard. They just have very different tastes than I do. Uh, but before we get too much further into Speed Racer, why don't you go ahead and summarize the plot for us, Jackson? You know, I think you these really hard challenges early in the episode. <laughs> I can actually summarize it for you very quickly. Speed Racer is in Lucian. Speed Racer is love. <laughs> okay, so Speed Racer is hard to summarize because it's told with a very achronological storytelling method. A lot of flashbacks and even flash forwards interwoven. So the summary is not doing injustice, but we're going to try. As a child, Speed Racer ideals his race car racing brother, Rex Racer. But when Rex is disgraced and dies, Speed develops a fixation in following his, in his footsteps. Inspiring crowds of a race, he is courted by E.R. Royalton, who wants him to sign to race on for his company. On the advice of his parents, he turns it down, uh, distressing the megacorps. Angered, Royalton reveals that all races are fixed, a show to facilitate corporate interests, and forces Speed out of racing by dirty tricks and by muscling in on Speed's family's mom-and-pop mechanic business. Then, corporate, crimes inve- corporate crimes intelligence agent Inspector Detector and racing-themed anti-hero Racer X Show up at the racer household to recruit Speed for a team-up that will sign me Royalton at the Casa Cristo 5000, the race that claimed Rex Racer's life. A lot happens involving ninjas, race cars, and bees, and a double cross that breaks Speed's spirit. He confronts Racer X over his suspicion that he's Rex Racer in disguise. X denies it and tells Speed that it's okay if he doesn't change racing as long as racing doesn't change him. Speed tries to walk out on his family just as his brother did years ago, but this time his dad forgives him before he gets out the door. He decides to race the Grand Prix after all, knowing it to be fixed. The racer family builds a, a new car together. Speed wins the race despite the bounty on his head and exposes Royalton's driver as a cheat in the process. Royalton goes to jail, Racer X turns out to be Rex Racer all along, and Sparky is also in this movie. <laughs> Yeah, speaking of Sparky, he has that ending, and you and I have talked about this, Jackson, before in our many Speed Racer conversations, <laughs> that it feels like there was a B-plot, like subplot with Sparky. Oh, for Sparky, kind of, yeah. Because he's there to say the wrong thing at the right time, and then he has this thing at the end where it's like... I want to say thank you. 
for what could be the most exciting moment of my whole life. Couldn't have gotten here without you. I'm looking forward to that cold milk. Me too. Yeah. But there's this huge emotional moment for him that just comes out of nowhere. For those who haven't seen it, Sparky is the kind of living mechanic who may or may not be having an affair with Maul Racer. And he has lovely arms and other features. And then he was like, what powers? <laughs> I have an alternate take that I'm just thinking of now. Nobody in the Racer family can read. And that's why he's there. Because he's always reading them the newspaper. I don't think we ever see any of them reading. So maybe none of them can read it. That's why they have Sparky there. And he also just helps with the cards. They're all just illiterate and superintendent mechanics. Yeah. Okay, sure. I mean, I also assume Trixie can read. Yeah, that's fine. Trixie mm. here, played by uh, Christina Ricci. So something the summary doesn't make clear is that the Racer family is very integral to the plot. And their dynamics form the heart of this movie. But also what they're doing individually isn't always super important to the beat-by-beat -beat parts of the narrative. This is a thing I found when we did on Equalizer Speed Racer 2. And I was coming up with it is a thing where the, the characters and their interactions are vitally important to the movie and how it like plays. But to your point, like it is very important to the film, but describing it, this sounds like the most boring film ever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we got Spridle Chim Chim, who is a chimpanzee, mm -hmm. Trixie, who is Speed Racer's girlfriend, and then Sparky, and to a lesser extent, uh, Ma and Pop Racer, who Pops is like more integral and Ma is also there for Speed Racer's development. The mm -hmm. rest could be removed from the film and it would still work, but it wouldn't work work. Mm -hmm. Although Ma and Pa Racer, we also have like, they are the acting heavyweights in this class. We have John Goodman and Susan Sarandon. Yeah. The way you mentioned ninjas, and I almost corrected you because he has a great line where he says, Oh my God, was that a ninja? More like a ninja. Terrible what passes for a ninja these days. Like the way John Goodman the timbre of his voice when he says that nonches is just I could listen to it for an hour on loop. Right? Yeah. That's the point of this film. Like maybe I've been judging this film a little too harshly, because that's a very good line. <laughs> Let's talk about the thing that made you not have a good time with this. Uh do we want to talk about the visuals or the storytelling choices? <laughs> um Well they were both perfect, so we can <laughs> basically I came here to have a good time. I'm feeling really attacked right now. <laughs> the way Alex is moving his hands and making faces is very much that scene in Zoolander where Wolf throws like, I feel like I'm taking crazy pills! Exactly. Let's go ahead and start with the visuals first. I can see what they were trying to do. I don't inherently hate everything that's going on with the visuals in this movie. <laughs> what a glowing endorsement. <laughs> I know, right? I think my biggest problem is the disconnect between everything that's going on in the neighborhood mm. that the racers live in and everything outside because in the racer house and their neighborhood and all the flashbacks we get to speed as a kid it's like this very idyllic like 1950s 1960s like hyper realism with mm. the, like the color and contrast turned up to 11 and it makes a lot of sense why they went that direction, especially considering the source material that they're working with. I think that works. What I don't think works is putting that directly next to all of these racing scenes that look straight out of a cyberpunk dystopia. That's fair. A lot of the backdrops in the neighborhood, especially like when in the opening scenes when Speed comes racing out of school to meet Rex, the background is very like 
South Park construction paper. It reminded and me then, of like Lazy Town. Yeah, or I was gonna like, say Blues Clues. Yeah, like, like a Nick Jr. Yeah, show. It, as opposed well, to like the races, which are these gorgeously like rendered and colored CGI. This would be Blues Clues to Ready Player One like that. Yeah. I described it being like that maze game from Windows 98. You also described it as very reminiscent of the Spy Kids franchise. Yeah, I described um, E.R. Royalton as a Spy Kids villain. <laughs> I don't mind that. I love Spy Kids. I think it would have worked better if instead of you know cyberpunk dystopia aspect, mm-hmm. they went with like this very retro future sort of aesthetic with like mm-hmm. you know you see those uh, spacesuits with like the big old bubble helmets and like the ring skirts and shit like that. Mm-hmm. I think that would have worked a lot better as a direction for the races and whatnot. Sure. I mean, I still have yet to see a problem. Like, <laughs> I really didn't like the dissonance between the two. I think that for me, I just, they started with like the Nick Jr. Blues Clues, whatever, backdrops. And I immediately was just like, oh, okay, like this is just kind of what they're going for. And I stopped really paying attention because I, this is meant to be some kind of weird, trippy, hyper-realistic color thing or, or not hyper realistic in some cases I, hyper expressivist maybe? yeah maybe low budget computer version of impressionism i just i caught on pretty quick that they weren't trying to make citizen kane or whatever so i just kind of stopped really interrogating it that's not to say how dare you because i've listened to the podcast i know that's what you all do i just mean i didn't really think too hard on that just and it's one thing to do that, but this film came out the same year as like Iron Man and Hellboy 2 The Golden Army. Are and you... in comparison, this is definitely a little bit of a lower standard than those. I mean, I would argue though, as we sit here in the shadow of some of my movies, one of which being The Last Starfighter, that came out roughly the same, like the year after A New Hope, and they leaned in the exact opposite direction of Star Wars, of not doing practical they went all cgi and it looks terrible but it's also still a cult classic like it could have been a conscious decision not to go Mm -hmm. as realistic yeah i will also say another thing that kind of bothers me about the visuals especially during like the fights during the racing Mm. is that the cars they're animated at a pretty low frame rate and so the animations don't look as fluid as I'm expecting. It looks like someone took a bunch of Hot Wheels and did mm-hmm. stop motion animation and then post-processed in a lots of bloom. So what frame rate would you expect a B-trebuchet <laughs> to be shot at? Just so I'm clear. Uh, 60p IMAX. Fair enough. Ask an answer. I think the time the visual stylization works best is during the last race when Speed is it kind of turns off his oh. view screen and reaches out with the force and mm-hmm. connects to the connects to the heart of the yeah, cards or whatever. Exactly, that's the phrase Madison used was trusting the heart of the car. Yeah, yeah, nice. And the racetrack like stops being a physical thing and becomes this kind of cool like, what can we do with this After Effects setting if we just plug in everything? Which I think is a good translation of the internal experience, even if it doesn't always look coherent, it's not always clear what's happening. I would definitely agree with you. Like that whole spiritual awakening awakening for speed during that last race, that whole sequence is gorgeous. I just really wish that we had maybe a little bit more of that earlier or there was more contrast between that and everything else going on because there's just so much bright color all the time. Sometimes it's really difficult to tell what's going on. Like during the Casa Cristo race at the beginning where they're in those tunnels, it's really mm. difficult to tell what's going on. And then they're finally on the mountain where there's some gray and brown. Like, oh, I can tell who's who. 
I think you're not supposed to necessarily be able to tell who's who, but in the minds of Moria, as I sometimes <laughs> refer to it as. We talked about in um, Gratuitous Thrones for the Battle of Winterfell, where it was kind of difficult to piece together who what was going on in the mist and how that was part of the point because it was this chaotic battle. I feel like when you have like, 70 cars in this very confined space just scrapping it out you're not like it gets across the point of how hectic that is by not necessarily being able to tell who's who fair enough mm. so i don't think there's another like part that you want to get into but let's let's um diffuse for a little bit and circle back to the bee catapults yeah maybe <laughs> just the, the weapons as a whole <laughs> okay <laughs> only the bees right but i mean this is one of the parts of the movie that i fucking loved they nailed all of speed racers wacky gadgets mm. and like the wacky races esque fights between these vehicles, I loved it. It was it was very on point for the source material, and it it I think it worked here. Even the the not gadgets where he's up in the air and like tail whipping other cars off the track and stuff was gorgeous. Like it was a very well done fight scene, which I mean mm-hmm. it is the Wachowskis and their a lot of their movies involve very intricate and sometimes like acrobatic fight scenes like the matrix and jupiter ascending yes that also had bees <laughs> <laughs> what is it with the Chaskis and bees anyway the whole sequence takes place basically in a desert where all the racers are allowed to cut loose with whatever and it's kind of well they're not supposed to but. well they're narratively allowed not legally allowed <laughs> Just kill this with all these like weird wacky gadgets, and it's you can tell that the film is just having fun. This is all very, mm-hmm. all fairly inconsequential, and that plays into the, the larger thing that I think does work is how this movie has a very wacky tone, and when it leans into it in the right ways, it really works. Like you just have a bunch of Viking themed race car drivers who are paid in furs to kill a man. That's the thing I feel like Speed Racer did well. Knowing when it needed to use the tone it did, because the races are wacky. The whole uh, change racing, the state of racing stuff is super melodramatic. Mm -hmm. The family dynamic stuff is very, like, even keeled in a way. But, like, it's a family that lost a son, and they're trying to continue on, and now they're, you know, whatever. Like, the family stuff was its own kind of even keeled story. The, The plot about royalty and all that was just super melodramatic, and the races were all wacky, and we never really deviated, really, from that. Like, the movie knew when the tone needed to be the tone it was, and I feel like that's a thing it did well. Mm. Yeah. I will say I could have done with a lot less of Spritel and his wacky comic relief scenes. Yeah. I can't complain too much because that's very in line with the source material. Like, Mm -hmm. Spritel and Shim Shim are always getting in trouble, and they are, in fact, addicted to candy. And Hayden speeds Trump all the time. All of those are facts that I can't deny from the original Speed Racer show. In the same way, the original Speed Racer show gave us uh, Inspector Detector. Yes, which I loved. I also really like the tone that they set with Racer X. Like, they nailed the voice and his demeanor. It was very good. Let's get into the other, like, major complaint I have for this film. And that's its attempt at a chronological storytelling. Yeah. I don't think it works. That first race, we're supposed to care about what's going on with Speed and all this history and his relationship with Rex. But they just plop us down in that race and then feed us all these flashbacks during it. And I really think it would have worked much better if they're like, here, here's Speed's history, you know, 10, 15 years later, he's going into this race, and then we get some flashbacks to maybe fill in some gaps. What I did love in that sequence specifically, though, was how they used, like, or the Mario Kart time trials, 
like ghost oh yeah kind of thing to signify yeah I, I overtaking it etc yeah i really did love that i love that he's like literally racing the ghost of his brother mm-hmm. like that's all solid and i get what they were trying to go for i just mm-hmm. don't think it worked yeah i really went in that direction for speed racer too was where he literally raced the ghost <laughs> of his brother um it works for me but also i've seen this you know several times so it might just it might at least partially come from this is new information for me, so I'm I'm not having to process and also observe. I'm just observing, I guess, if that makes sense. Okay, like I can understand this working. How does the like royalty bidding everything is rigged work? Speed going to that race, and then we're suddenly back in Royalton's office where he's explaining the whole like international conspiracy on racing. Uh, race Kate. <laughs> <laughs> um. Hmm. um. <laughs> Because that oh, no. was insane. I have no idea how they let that one out of editing. It's so bad. Race it makes gates. no sense. Race gates about ethics and racing journalism. Oh no. Seven hells. Um, That's where I'm going. <laughs> All of them. Uh, I, I agree. I think that one is not not as successful. Yeah. I I also thought it was going to be a like this is a potential thing, and now we're going to see how it actually plays out. Yeah, like that would have made sense, but that's not what happens. It then cuts back to him at the very end of the race, talking with Ben Burns and like bringing up the whole rigging thing, and he gets cagey about it and leaves. I mean, I, I took that as very much admitting it without openly admitting well, it. Well, yeah, obviously. But my big thing is, why would you cut in the entirety of this race and then go back to Royerton? It makes no sense. Well, I think it doesn't always work. I also support experimentation in film, which is something you don't see very often, possibly for a good reason. But it was an attempt. It was a noble attempt. It was not a successful attempt, but it was at least it was an attempt at innovation, which I, I get. Yeah. And like, I don't want to hit them too hard for like trying something new and innovating. I get that. You got to try these things to see if they work. It's just, I think it's also important for us to call it out when it definitely doesn't. Mm-hmm. I feel like someone out there has a nuanced understanding of why it's made like this and why these editing choices were made from due to like thorough analysis of how Wachowskis do. I'm not that person. I, I'd be intrigued to see other people's thoughts on those choices. I think that's an interesting I mean, conversation. I feel like a decision like that is to try to also keep racing happening in the movie at regular intervals because if we did the opening and it was just here's speed racers background and now here's the race that's like 20 minutes of movie before we actually get to a race yeah but i think it's important for us to establish why these characters matter before the race happens i'm not disagreeing i'm saying jackson's talking about the why they did it this way Mm -hmm. and i think the idea is for something like backstory Mm -hmm. or exposition like that just you know, here's 15 minutes of people like talking about backstory mm. or whatever, or Royalton just like monologuing for a while in his office. Let's get some racing in there also mm-hmm. to break it up. But I'm not saying it worked. I'm saying I can see the thought process behind this is a movie about racing. Mm-hmm. Also, we get to come up with way more cool racing fight moves. Like jamming four steel poles into the ground while you're going 100 miles an hour <laughs> to definitely leap vertically upwards because that's how that works. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, like, I, I loved the dumb car fight. The cars were like clashing around in the air like they were from Bla- Beyblade. Mm-hmm. And I think we said, uh, the Chassis doing a Beyblades movie sounds amazing. I mean, there's literally a, a stunt where somebody leaps over Racer X in the Casa Cristo 
because they're going to use like the flail off the back of their car to kill him. So he jumps trip and punches that guy in the face <laughs> from the cockpit of his car to the cockpit of the other guy's car and then lands and keeps driving away. Like, there is one non-car fight where... With the nonges. Well, yeah, well, oh, sorry, there's two. There's the one with the nonges and there's the one on the mountain pass that feels like like a cut scene from Scott Pilgrim. And that one's also like very stylized. So they keep, they've managed to keep the same like hyper-stylization that they're using for the races in this fight scene that could have otherwise been just like punching each other. They at least had cohesion of a sort. <laughs> One other thing I will give this movie credit for, there is a uh, diegetic bleep in this film that is so good. Something big is going on because every race official has been... Ladies and wait, gentlemen, wait, an announcement is being made. Please. Now driving in the 40th and final Holy position sh- for Racer what? Motors in the Mach 6. Like that, that was a very smart move. How can you not like this movie? He changed racing, Alex. <laughs> Up to that point, though, well, I think there, he, it doesn't work as a film, I think, mm. as, as you said. <laughs> Based on that system I invented and you stole. <laughs> yes. Like the emotional arc of defeating this evil megacorp oh, through yeah. racing. I feel feelings, which is, you know, good. I think part of it is that I had certain expectations because I was I, I am a fan of the source material and it did not live up to those expectations and I might be judging it harshly in a few ways that maybe are unfair. Mm, sure. One last thing I do want to talk about is Emile Hirsch and Christina Ricci mm. and their portrayal of this relationship of Speed and Trixie. So at the beginning of the movie... There is absolutely no chemistry between the two of them, and I don't believe... Just to be clear, are we talking about the little kid versions, or are we talking about Emile Hirsch and Christina Ricci? Oh, I'm talking about the adult versions, but at the beginning of the movie. I wanted to be clear. Like, when Spritel is hiding in the trunk and pops out while they're at, like, make-out point or whatever, Mm -hmm. it's like that they are very stiffly acting out an Archie comic. Oh, man. I can't wait for the CW Speed Racer (laughs) series. Wow, okay. But then as soon as there's some tension introduced where Trixie has to drive for Tokagon because he was poisoned by a ninja. Nanja. <laughs> as soon as you introduce tension, then they're like fighting. I'm like, oh yeah, I can I can see the relationship here. I'm actually, I can believe this now. I wish that that sort of energy was brought forward earlier. Hmm. There's also just... I think this film has too many characters that it doesn't really know what to do with. Yeah. Like, like Sparky. <laughs> like, like Sparky. A lot of the Racer family, like they have their little, like, little bit parts, but they don't do a whole lot. I honestly would have been totally okay just cutting Spritel and Jim Jim. That would have been fine. I think also if you merge Sparky and Trixie, that would also reduce the amount of excess characters and and if you combine their two scenes and the surprise amount of chemistry that Speed and Sparky have with each other, not my natural Talking opinion. about milk. <laughs> yeah, their whole milk drinking thing, which hmm. It's a kids movie, so they can't drink champagne. It's it's PG. Actually you bring up like the merging Sparky with someone else. Actually merging Sparky and Spritel, a Sparky Racer is much better name. And B, then you have this like super talented like mechanical whiz kid helping Pops build a car. That sounds fun. Yeah, I think that's much better than the the child actors that we got here. Sure. So are you suggesting Sparky and Sprite are mixed basically into Cubert from Futurama? Hey, Leela, help me apply these flame decals I got in my cereal. They'll make the ship go faster. And what's your scientific basis for thinking that? I'm 12. Yeah, kind of. 
I think I've said my piece on Speed Racer. Do you have anything else? There's a lot I can talk about for this movie, but we do have a time limit. It's just, it's a perfect movie and no one disagrees. So I think it doesn't get talked about as much as it could be. And I would, <clears throat> would love to see a renaissance of Speed Racer discourse or even just like someone else trying to do the same kind of thing. Maybe not, not like a remake for it by any means, but... A sequel perhaps? Yeah. I do know that for like the 10th anniversary of its release, I saw a lot of people talking about it on Twitter and remembering it fondly. Which also raised my expectations for this film that were then unfortunately dashed. Let's go ahead and move on to A Knight's Tale. Do you have some tomatoes for us? I have one. Oh, wow. Because this movie is one of those that is so beloved where people don't care about it at all. There was no one with very vocal, wild opinions. But I do have Conrad A. Conrad's spelled with a K. Who gave this a one and a half stars. Too old of a movie. I saw part of this on TV. Now it has good dances and good music alongside that good romance. But it's just too old of a movie for me. So not the best. It came in 2001. Too old. This review was in 2017. 16 years. Pro- like if- I'm assuming that this person was born prior to 2001. <laughs> Any movie that has been made 16 years from the current date is too old. A nice tale is barely old enough to drink. Too old. Also, Jackson, it's not old enough to drink. Uh, set in England. The drinking age is 18. As long as you, or as long as you look over 18. What's the driving age? Can this movie race in the Casa Cristo? I, What's the driving age in Speed Racer? <laughs> probably younger than it should be. Anyway. <laughs> so for those who haven't seen it, what's a nice tale about? So, when Sir Ector dies in the middle of a jousting tournament, his hungry squires, Will, Roland, and Watt, decide to have Will impersonate him to finish the match and feed themselves with the prize. William, however, gets a taste of jousting and convinces his compatriots to continue the ruse, now as Ulrich von Lichtenstein, to help feed them. On their way to their first tournament, they encounter Geoffrey Chaucer, who has nothing, not even the clothes on his back. <laughs> Chaucer immediately sees through Will's disguise, but offers to help forge documents for a cut of the winnings. When they get to the tourney, it's revealed that Chaucer is in debt to some unsavory types, but Will secures his release and promises to pay off his debt with the winnings. The tournament goes well until Will's hand-me-down armor is damaged, and the party has no funds to repair it. Eventually, Will is able to go to Kate, a female blacksmith, to fix it for payment after the tourney. Will comes first in sword competition and shows honorable conduct towards his opponents in the jousting competition, but ultimately comes in second against Count Admar. Will also manages to catch the interest of a noblewoman, Lady Jocelyn, whom Admar is also trying to woo. Admar is called away for military duties, and in his absence, Will and his party dominate the tournaments and he and Jocelyn grow closer. However, when they travel to London for the World Championships, Will visits his father, and his secret is discovered by Admar. Will is arrested and pilloried, but his party defends him from the jeers of the crowd, until Edward, the Black Prince, intervenes. He knights Will as repayment for jousting against him at an early tournament, when no one else would. Will then competes against Admar in the final. Admar cheats using a sharpened lance and injures Will. Will has to finish the match without armor, but is able to dehorse the arrogant count and win the prize. Where would we like to begin? I have one thing I would like to talk about because, and it's a bit of a comparison, and because as we're doing a doubleheader, I feel like it's apt. Yeah, go for it. I feel like this movie had a way, way more confusing and not very well explained scoring system than, than Speed Racer. Because Speed Racer's a race, it's like you win or you don't. This, there was the thing about if you get a point for hitting the body of Two points for the head, three if you dehorse them, and you get the horse. But there was a point where Jocelyn tells, like, instead of winning to honor me with your high reputation, 
I want you to act against your normal character and do badly. Do badly. Lose. And he's down like nine points or something and somehow wins. And it's never explained how that's fucking possible. And I'm just, we're watching the movie and it's kind of like somebody I've heard talk about the movie Casino Royale, where if you don't understand poker, you're just kind of like, oh, was that a good hand? Did he win that one? <laughs> like in, in that tournament, it's basically like, I'm just watching him hit this guy with a, with a lance until they announce who won. I can't remember, does he unhorse his opponent in that scene? Uh, yeah, he eventually unhorses him when he comes around. Does unhorsing function as like catching the golden snake? You get a lot of points and you get their horse. Yeah. <laughs> they can't compete anymore because they don't have a horse. It's kind of like an auto win. Okay. That scene does kind of raise some like logistics questions. <laughs> I will also admit that's right around the time of the film where the pacing starts to get a little out of whack and the film drags. And I think that's one of the weaker scenes of the film. I just, because arguably, again, because they don't kind of explain... We were at this like crucial battle scene, if you will, mm -hmm. and I had absolutely no idea how I was supposed to like. I'd seen the movie before, so I knew what happened, mm -hmm. but I was just like, "So does Will need to like not get hit? What what's happening in this scene?" Mm -hmm. So I feel like, it, to some regards, I like conspiracy. Like you win or you don't. Yeah, and that's that's a problem that some sports movie have across the boards. Mm -hmm. Like if you, there are some sports movies where it's filmed, you don't have to know the sport to understand what's going on. Mm -hmm. There's some sports films that will specifically have a character that everything gets explained to so the audience understands. Right. And they attempt to do that here, probably not as good of a description. And I think part of that is because we don't have a clear idea of jousting because it's yeah. we don't well, have jousting tournaments all the time now. So I, I understand to some extent because there are so many what ifs. Like in Adam Mars when he's explaining it to, you know, a woman. Yeah. He's not gonna be like, but also if you both hit, this is how that point system works. It's like, okay, I just need to give her the most basic outline because she's a woman. Yeah. I don't know why I keep doing quotes. I mean because I'm being I'm making fun of the attitude of the time, but it also seems like she is like a woman, but yes. Yeah. They were really devoted to the whole like Guinevere Lancelot recreation mm -hmm. for that one scene, so they kind of were dedicated to that. Which, as an Arthurian Legends fan, I did like they were just straight up stealing one of the plots of, of a legend, where like, Guinevere's lose for me, now win for me, I'm the top. <laughs> <laughs> but also, on, on a more serious note, um, the, the mansplaining scene is really fun, because it gives a sense of who Adamar is, and we're like, okay, sure. This is set in the in the seventeen nineties, but it's still this guy who just technically the fourteenth century. Yes, I also yeah the seventeen nineties, like I said. Uh, <laughs> I also love Adamar's very smugly, sinisterly gay like Harold, <laughs> because that dude every time he talks or looks at anybody, it's like Grima Wormtongue from Lord of the Rings. <laughs> I love how he's so proud of himself for attempting to emulate Chaucer later yeah. on in the movie, and then Chaucer still just comes up and just completely blows him out of the water as Harold. <laughs> of Galactus, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Jeffrey Chaucer. Uh, TM Marvel. <laughs> I mean, Vision is Harold of Galactus. Paul Bettany plays both Chaucer and Vision in the MCU. Yeah. So he, he plays can't. Jeffrey Chaucer in the MCU? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm down for it. Yeah. Marvel 1606. They're playing Queen. Who knows what time period Yeah, is. I do really love how anachronistic this is, but the film doesn't let you know that quite up front. The opening is very, like, old Hollywood. It reminds me of a lot of, like, classic washbuckling movies, like 
Robin Hood, Captain Blood, that mm-hmm. sort of thing for the opening. And it's like, oh, we're getting the, like this classic Hollywood retelling of this medieval tale. And then... Sing it! We will, we will rock you and it's like, oh, this movie is going to do some things differently. And you eventually realize that it's not a guitar solo, it's a sackbut that they're playing for the guitar riffs. This film is really good at like straddling that line between being serious and having some fun anachronisms. This could have very easily devolved into a Monty Python thing, and I think it would have suffered for it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I a lot of the reviews I found that while looking for tomatoes, I kind of agree with of like it really went off the rails once they started. And I'm like, I'll say like the love plot. I don't mean to be like, oh, the romance was so bad. It just like it ground things. Like it, it, it felt like one movie and then a second movie in the middle of that, and then it ended the first movie that I was trying to do. Like the whole Jocelyn thing almost felt like a different movie than what they started. With. Yeah, some of some of working in the plot with Jocelyn does drag the movie down, and it's really unfortunate because I like Jocelyn as a character, mm-hmm. and I like what she brings to the film. I just wish they found a better way to incorporate her into everything else that was already going on. But it was not full struggle since she's like beamed down from the boo. I think part of the reason that they, the love plot is so heavy in this one is because it's really the writers exploring what if we gave William Shakespeare a bunch of 90s rom-coms based on his works mm-hmm. and then had him write something new. Mm-hmm. And I'm for that. Like, that's yeah. a fun movie. It just happened in the middle of an entirely separate movie. Mm-hmm. Like the parts are all fun and they're just not quite cohesive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like individual. It's <laughs> I can't believe I'm making this comparison, but it's like how when they made Anchorman, they had a whole second B story that they realized was unnecessary, so they cut it, and then what they did was release it as a second movie with bits from the original one to make it its own 90-minute film. Like, mm-hmm. that's kind of how this felt of like, you know what, actually, we could have made a whole second movie by cutting some bits here and there, and then that's how we could have mm-hmm. done it. It just really yeah. felt kind of bloated to me there in that regard. Yeah. Although one thing I do like that Jocelyn provides is it allows us to like get up into the stands and mm-hmm. have people commenting about the jousting because sure. mm-hmm. it leads to some really interesting, not even like color commentary, but like color psychology about like who they are as people. If they're a top or a bottom. <laughs> I guess. Slit in a helmet's visor is narrow, but splinters can penetrate it. Most knights raise their chins at the last instant. You lose sight of your opponent, but you protect your eyes. This Ulrich doesn't. He keeps his eye on the target. A true hunter. It can be hard to create narratively satisfying women in narratives set in like historical eras without making them feel anachronistically empowered as opposed to like believably empowered mm-hmm. for the time. And I think Jocelyn does a really good job of being still a noble woman, still someone who like feels like she would fit into this era, but still has agency of her own and still like isn't just like a wilting flower, but also mm-hmm. isn't like a very male gazy action lady. While we're on the topic of things that don't quite fit, the other B-plot that probably doesn't need to be here is everything going on with Will and his dad. Oh, no, yeah, cut all that. Like, it really doesn't add anything. We could have found out another way for Will's secret to become public knowledge. We just get all these flashbacks that grind everything else to a halt, and we get the scenes with his dad, which are fine, but they're nothing special. Mm-hmm. You know, that's actually a better way of putting kind of what I was saying was that this 
movie seems like every 20 minutes grinds what it's doing to a halt to switch gears to this other thing. Mm-hmm. It's episode seven of every Netflix original series ever. <sighs> Not wrong. I do want to celebrate the comedic chops. Like we've got uh, Mark Addy, who you'll probably recognize these days from his role in uh, The Thin Blue Line from the 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> or The Full Monty. Yeah. Or that sitcom he was in, The New One. Oh, yeah. It was a very good one. I can't remember the name of it, though. He's also Robert Baratheon. Give me some of the pain and let me die. We also have Alan Tudyuk here. You, you probably know him from Moana. He played mm-hmm. the chicken. Or Steve the Pirate. Um, Keith Ledger, who was in Something Things I Hate About You. Brokeback Mountain. And then we also we already mentioned Vision. Paul Bettany. Yeah, I can't remember his name. Right he played by not Janine Garofalo because yeah. I always, whenever I think about this movie, I always feel like I remember Janine Garofalo was Kate. Yeah. Um, and then Lady Jocelyn looked like she was supposed to be played by uh, Natalie Portman, but then they couldn't afford Natalie Portman, so they you know, went with someone else. And they're all really funny. I think they all get different ways to shine. Like, Roland has this great bit where he's arguing with people in a pub and decides to take their bet because... Well, the Pope may be French, but Jesus is English. You're on. Whereas Watts is not eloquent in the way that Chaucer is, so he has this threat. Betray us, and I will fong you until your insides are out. Your outsides are in. Your entrails will become your extrails. Peng! Those of pain. I also just love Paul Bettany in this. He mm-hmm. is inspired both for like his pontifications when he is be- acting as Harold for Will. The lance, the thrilled France, the harasser of Parasa. He gave them hell and La Rochelle, the enforcer of our Lord God. The stabbing wit that he is narrowing at Watt just to annoy him. But we also get some more vulnerable moments. Like when we see him standing before Will as it's, will you please bail me out, save me from these unsavory folks. And like he has this quivering lip that is just so good and please help. And I also really like that some of the characters from the movie wind up being very clearly the, the inspiration for some of the Canterbury Tales. Like there's a, a clever bit they didn't have to do, but it added to the narrative. Mm-hmm. And even Keith Ledger gets to be like you know a funny leading man. The whole bit where they're in the church and he's having to like free write poetry and all he's got is your breast. They're below your throat. That church scene is also really good because it's a very long take while the camera just goes back and forth as the characters advance and retreat as they argue. Yeah, it is very good. I just wish the set for the church scenes was better. It's very, very empty. It's a minus two. Just very white for the architecture and patrons. Then a Thor is back there. I had a note that you brought up, Alex. At first, when they're all still in like their peasant garb and they mm-hmm. meet Chaucer, but then like I was paying more attention to it. And this is oddly a very unsexy movie. Jocelyn's an attractive woman and Will's an attractive man, but nobody's dressed like terribly provocatively, even for like the time. Like it's Hollywood. They find ways of being like, oh yeah, it's, you know, medieval times, but here's as much cleavage as we could possibly show you on a screen. And no one's like dressed very sexy or made up to be super sexy. Like Mm -hmm. it's just kind of a come as you are movie. Even when Chaucer is like buck ass nude, they don't linger on his. Yes. 
the way it's shot and framed, it's less for like titillation and more for comedy purposes. Mm-hmm. One, there's not even a sex scene. Mm-hmm. And two, it's like she's fully clothed and goes into the tent and maybe through shadow we see her take something off. But like there's really no sex appeal in the movie beyond just their natural sex appeal, I guess. Yeah. Uh, I'm just going to throw out there really quickly that Rufus Sewell is an immortal vampire because I've seen him in three movies across his career from like early, middle, end, and he has not aged a day. He's just gotten maybe a little bit fuller in the face. As he drains more blood of the innocent. This is an early cameo from our um, Pride and Prejudice versus Zombies versus Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter episode. Am I involved in this episode? (laughs) I mean, you don't have to be. (laughs) I'm going to be. the Seth Graham Smith special. Oh. So, let's go ahead and get into extra innings for these movies. Sure. Um, what is the training gimmick for Speed Racer? Trust in the heart of the car. Pretty much. I mean, there's really only that one scene where Rex teaches him. Stop steering and start driving. That, and that's pretty much the training montage? Well, we do actually have a training montage that is full of weird gimmicks. We have Roland and Watt pulling Will on a boat down a creek to try and catch a ring. God, I forgot about that. <laughs> I, I do love the boat. We could also just like the gimmick is compete or you're going to starve to death because you're peasants. It's the gimmick for a lot of movies. <laughs> That's yeah. fair. Engage in the sport that you're a professional <laughs> in or starve is kind of a sport. It's staple. a little bit more overt here. <laughs> I'm going to vote for boat if only because it's less grim. That's fair. I'll vote for speed racer. Because I'm nothing if not loyal. Oh, no, I meant like of the two for from nice stuff, but also oh. I, I vote for boat over speed racers because I think you could actually learn to be a better jouster by doing that thing. Mm-hmm. Whereas having had a car that had many mechanical failures, believing in it hard enough has not made the number three spark plug work better. No, don't get me wrong, you were correct to do that. I'm saying I'm voting for speed racer because I'm loyal to the movie, not because it's a better gimmick. <laughs> sure, I think I'm also going to go with a knight's tale. Really. <laughs> I thought, I thought you were going to go for Speed Racer on that one. Uh, how about our montages? Well, montage, we have the training gimmick uh, in A Knight's Tale set to Lowrider by Foghat. Speed Racer, we have the beautiful car battles in the montages. If it was like a normal montage, I'd probably give it to Speed Racer because some of those car fights are very gorgeous. But we do specify training montages, and yeah. Speed Racer unfortunately doesn't really have one of those. How convenient for you. Well, the closest thing it has to that is the drive where Young Speed is with Rex in the car, mm. or when they are building the Mach 6. I feel like building the Mach 6, that is definitely a montage. Yeah. And it's like speed getting prepared in the zone for the Grand Prix. And part of it is while racer making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. You know, that's what women do. Yeah. I think it's also slightly less of a training montage, so yeah. I still vote for speed racer. I see which way the wind's blowing, so I might as well. <laughs> I'm also going to vote for speed racer. I feel more emotions about that, and I'm a little rider is an okay song. I just love the fact that they used it for a jousting montage. <laughs> that is very good. Because really all it makes me think of is a horse with hydraulics. And that's fucking hilarious. Man, the new Kingsman prequel looks wild. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, this is technically a participation trophy, so neither of these movies is like moving forward or anything. I personally prefer A Knight's Tale, but obviously the two people I have here with me this week have a little bit more fonder feelings for Speed Racer. And that's fine. Oh no, I know which way Mike's voting now, so I'm the tiebreaker. 
Nothing moves forward. We don't even have to have a vote. Oh. No, yeah, we do. <laughs> is Mike uh, throwing down the gratuitous gauntlet? I'm going, is that a thing? <laughs> the gratuitous gauntlet is a good Doctor Who serial. <laughs> I'm going to pull my vote off of my head, break it into two pieces, and talk about how the loot does not exist, and then throw it into the crowd. Uh, you're the AT&T of people. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I saw that joke from Community. <laughs> you cut to the course. For probably a less contentious episode, you can tune in next week where we'll be starting our Monster Bracket. Our first episode being The Exorcist versus The Shape of Water. Mike, where can they find more of you? Yeah, so as I mentioned many times, uh, I do a podcast with my friend Madison Jones called The Equalizers, where we take movies that never got a sequel or prequel, either because they're too good and they don't need one, or they're too bad and they don't deserve one, and we give them to them. As we're recording this, we have just finished our return from hiatus which is a movie i challenged madison to make which was a choose your own adventure sequel to dude where's my car and it is everything you would hope from that <laughs> um, if it's not out now it will be out probably within the next week and then after that we have a second episode with jackson guesting where we will also be doing a bracket in a shorter form spoiler alert we're gonna kidnap you again so pack it over and i bag this time <laughs> Just remember, um, if you want to press charges, this time it's premeditated. Ah, that's true. I mean, no. <laughs> uh, Jackson and I also host a podcast called Studying Granada, where we watch the 1980s Sherlock Holmes Granada series starring Jeremy Brett and Edward Hardwick. And we read the stories and we talk about it. Uh, we're currently getting ready to wrap up season three. Find us online by searching uh, Studying Granada on all the podcast apps or on Twitter at in underscore Granada. And I forgot to say this, if you want to find The Equalizers, you can find us everywhere online by searching The Equalizers, and we spell it E-Q-U-E-L-I-Z-E-R-S, like in the sequel. All right. Thanks for coming on this week. Thank you for having me. So once again, this has been the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.